This podcast is brought to you by All Things Film. Bullshit. No, it, it really is. All Things Film, the web's premier collection of independent movie and TV related podcasts. For more, check out www.allthingsfilm.co.uk or search All Things Film on iTunes, Stitcher or TuneIn Radio. And now, on with the show. Welcome to Japan of Fire 21 on Sabu's Dead Run, and it's the 21st episode of this uh, series on Japanese cinema, and it's our continued look at Japanese filmmaker Sabu that uh, we're continuing during this episode. And it's been a wild, quirky, runny, drivey journey so far, but things take a dark turn for Dead Run from 2005, and we'll tell you all about that in just a moment and with me to discuss and review that movie that dark movie along with a few other movies is the cinemas coffin john say hi buddy hello kenneth and hello everyone else and speaking of runny yes i have a runny nose so i didn't even uh, think to connect that that was not not, not me like uh, predicting that john is gonna his allergies are gonna act up it's like uh, i was going for Literal runny, drivey, walky journey. I, I should have I should have written walky journey as well. Yes, walky, very walky. Everything well over in the cinema land and coffin John Lambda? Uh yes, very much so. Uh, doing okay. Um, <laughs> actually, to tell you the truth, uh, I haven't worked very much on the website recently, but I still um, we still put up a lot of stuff. Um, uh, I guess we should go ahead and mention it now, uh, in case people don't know, V Cinema is a website that covers Asian cinema. Um, we're located at the cinema show. That's S H O W dot com. And, uh, I'm sort of the editor in chief, although I'm kind of more like the, uh, executive producer now. I'm just basically paying the bills. And, uh, the acting editor in chief is, uh, Dr. John Barra. He's been putting up a lot of, uh, reviews and articles from all the other writers at the site and uh i hope to get back into it this year it's just a schedule my schedule personal schedule is just really uh, ridiculous right now so um but uh you know the john bear has been doing a great job for the last couple of years a lot of good uh, film reviews up there of uh, both recent and a uh, classic asian film including uh, when we started this series uh he put up a review. I, I, don't, I don't think he wrote it, but uh, you guys had up a review for uh, Sabu's at the time of recording back then. Latest movie, Miss Zombie. That was a review by uh, Colleen. And we're hoping to get to Miss Zombie as well, because by now there are home video versions that are hopefully subtitled officially or unofficially. So, But we'll get to that. That is, uh, that is possibly a cheerier episode than Dead Run is. Uh, but uh, we'll... we'll get to dead round in a short while i'm just gonna do the contact information on my behalf and this is japan on fire on the podcast on fire network our website is podcastonfire.com you'll find this show and other shows on various asian uh, asian cinema hong kong taiwanese and what have you and we also do bonus episodes every now and again if you want to reach us by email you can do so podcast on fire at google mail.com questions and feedback 
is uh, very welcome. We have a presence on Facebook. Our page that you can like is facebook.com forward slash POF network. But if you want to interact with us and a variety of other members, you can do so in our discussion group. It's called Podcast on Fire Network and you'll find that us by searching that term in the Facebook search bar. Our Twitter handle is at Podcast on Fire, so you can reach us over there. I write about uh, mainly Hong Kong movies, uh, adult-oriented, category-free rated uh, movies, a variety of genres from Hong Kong, but also uh, ninja movies, those uh, funny Godfrey Ho movies, and uh, some Taiwanese movies of the 70s and 80s, uh, very genre-oriented in terms of that. And I also video review at sleazykvideo.com, and my Twitter handle is at SoGoodReviews. And Japan on Fire is available on iTunes if you prefer to access your podcasts that way. And if you have the time, please leave a rating by clicking the little star staffing. And uh, if you have the time, please also leave a written comment about what you thought of the show. We would love to see some reviews up there for one of our specialized shows. If I'm being honest, most of our reviews come via, they uh, mostly come via listeners. Who listens to who listens to a podcast on fire, which is understandable. That's our kind of flagship show with the more known movies, more accessible movies, and Japan on Fire. As much as I love it, is more of a specialized show. We, we're not talking like Dead Run. It's not like the Transformers of Japan from 2005. It's not that big. I mean, I don't. <laughs> I don't it may, maybe it can be considered be considered. Geez, I don't know. Not not underground or indie, but but certainly not penetrating the public consciousness like you read about. I think uh, the second movie that, uh, rather the movie in the episode after this, that can be argued to be uh, something people noticed when Sabu announced he was going to make that. So, uh, But uh, we'll, talk about, uh, we'll talk about that later on. And uh, you can finally uh, stream us on Stitcher Radio if you don't like downloading podcasts to your device. And they have an application available on the Apple App Store and Google Play. So let's get into the uh, rundown because uh, we have, as usual, some segments here. So I thought I'd let you know what's coming up in this episode. And uh, they will have the sections, timestamps next to them in the show post. And those will actually turn up in, for instance, the Apple podcast app. If you download the show and just tap the show art, that will reveal the show post text, including the timestamps. But I don't know exactly how that works in other smartphones uh, podcast applications so uh, there's uh, some guidance for you so you can jump ahead to any section if you so desire so first up there will be a brief recap of Sabu's biography because we haven't done this in a while we will also offer up brief takes on the movies covered in prior episodes and I will also squeeze in brief views on Unlucky Monkey and Drive because I didn't have time to view those last episode John did so but I wanted to catch up because uh, they did sound intriguing after that, me and John will quickly review Sabu's boy band comedies, Hard Luck Heroes and Ho- Hard Luck Hero and Hold Up Down, as well as a short movie he found time to do. And after that is done, we conclude the episode with the review of 2005's Dead Run. So again, just like in the second, or rather what became the second and third installment of the Sabu series, uh, the episode on uh, Blessing Bell, and I'm blanking on the other movie's name, but, uh, oh yeah, uh, Monday and the Blessing Bell, we did that as one episode, split it, in, split it into two. But what we did during the Monday section is, we'll, we talked of Sabu's biography, uh, uh, we recapped the bio that we did in the first episode in a longer version. So, actor and director, uh, he started out as the former 
Homer, actually, and his real name is Hiro Yukitanakia, but goes under the name or pseudonym Sabu, which was a nickname he got working on one of his first movies as an actor, the movie Soto Banzuki in 1986. And he made the transition to director in 1996 through Dangan Runner, aka Nonstop, and established through that and his second movie, Postman Blues, that he wanted quirky humor, action, and even some drama within his films. And uh, I always quote the Wikipedia bio because I think it's kind of spot on. Uh, so, quote, his movies are propelled by characters who hurtle headlong towards squirming narratives steered more by the forces of incidents and coincidence than the actions of the protagonists themselves. End quote. And Sabu has had a fairly long career, so he's not uh, been content doing this wild style and mixture all the time. But it is something he is associated with, and as our reviews stated for the first few movies, the mix is something he does quite well. And I describe Dangan Runner as a very confident, oddball, dry movie with a little bit of drama thrown in into somewhat uh, some absurd circumstances. Uh, that was his debut movie. And his even better second movie, Postman Blues, it, I felt it was bigger, longer, more expansive and very Sabu, which is very welcome. And uh, we covered Monday and Blessing Bell next, Monday being my favorite Sabu movie so far. And it's quite an out-of-this-world wild time that's both quirky, dry, hilarious, even haunting. With a possible message about gun violence, but also possibly not. And finally, a blessing bell slowed things down considerably. No running, no driving, but walking. With very little dialogue to support that as our main character has a day of experiences and an awakening of sorts as he walks from one place and then back. A rewarding film the more you think about it. And it's quite funny in spots, but dialed down considerably. So I'll throw over the mic to you, if you will, John. Uh, do you want to run through your brief takes on uh, the movie's covered up until uh, Blessing Bell? Well, I think um, up until now, we've sort of emphasized, um, at least accepting uh, Blessing Bell, we've emphasized that uh, Sabu is kind of a director who focuses a lot on comedy and action and um, actually, you know, now that, um, you know, we've seen Blessing Bell as well as uh, the film that we are going to be um, covering in this episode, uh, Dead Run, as well as the film we're covering next episode, uh, Connie Coulson, you know, at this point, we kind of have to throw away that, you know, Sabu is just an action director, just a comedy director, and kind of go with that his characters always experience some sort of like personal growth through their experiences um, and, you know, the action and the running is almost like the vessel for that. So, yeah. And, you know, the more I thought of these films um, uh, or the more I reflected on uh, these films when I was uh, thinking about them uh, last night, when you sent over this outline is kind of like, yeah, I think that's kind of what he's getting at sort of, you know, this kind of human growth, this human change, you know, and what basically sparks it. And you and you can do that even when making comedies and making sure. drama as well, uh, whether in, se in separate movies or within the same movie, which is uh, something I uh, am attracted to as a concept. Right, yeah. And that, I think the fact that he can do that, you know, in a comedy, in, you know, good comedy too, is, uh, you know, quite, I think, a feat. Because, you know, when you think of things like uh, those sort of themes of personal growth, you don't necessarily think comedy. You think something like, oh, it's got to be a drama or, or possibly a romance or something like that. But, um, 
you know, that he can, I guess, mix those, mix a genre with a theme that's fairly serious. I think that's, uh, I think that says something about him as a, as a director. And, and, and he's been at it. I mean, it's in his third decade, uh, not in total 30 years, but he's in his third uh, decade as a working director now. I mean, so it's, uh, you, you, I think it's natural to, uh, evolve and have new ideas because you're not the same you're not a happy-go-lucky person like for 30 years straight that means you're as a human you go through various stages and i'm sure as a creator you go through various stages that's not saying he's incredibly depressed and that's why we got dead run it's uh, just a natural way of things uh, i think uh, being around the movie industry and absorbing uh, whatever kind of story uh, that appeals to him if he reads books like he can read a funny book and he can read a depressing book the next uh, day after and maybe the depressing book is what sparks the filmmaking uh, gene if you will again i think there's also something that can be said about you know i mean the fact that genre and theme are not you know not necessarily mutually exclusive, but they're not the same either, you know, because, you know, I don't want to go into this like in whole because it's going to sound like an, uh, an English lecture or something like that or a literature lecture or something like that. But, you know, it's like I think we get so used to depressing themes to be stuck in, you know, depressing genres or or I should say maybe more like deadpan genres like dramas or, you know, something of the sort. But, uh, you know, that doesn't necessarily have to be the case, you know, that you can mix things very well, but you have to do it very well. You have to be like a chemist, I guess, if you want to extend that metaphor of mixing things, you know. You know, you can't just haphazardly uh, do it. So I I think that, you know, at least up to this point, you know, up to the point that we're talking about, at least in this segment of the episode, I think uh, Sabu is... uh, his work has been uh, admirable in admirable, excuse me, in uh, in achieving that mix. So, what has been your favorite uh, movie up to and uh, up to the uh, le- the movies uh, that led up to Hard Luck uh, Hero? What was your uh, what has been your favorite? Whether we covered it uh, as a main uh, review on the show or not? Uh, I think Postman Blues has been. I think it's been the most successful um, up to this point. It's kind of got a little of everything. Plus, um, it could be considered commercial, but also is kind of odd enough to be, um, you know, I think appealing to people who are more into cult uh, type of uh, film. Um, so, yeah, I would I would definitely say Postman Blues. Uh, well, you, you summarized his work uh, quite well up until The Blessing Bell. So uh, let's move on a little bit uh, to my views on movies that John spoke briefly about last episode that we watched and uh, one or two do quick reviews of and those movies were Unlucky Monkey and Drive. For my opinions there, Unlucky Monkey was solid. It had no real complaints and I was quite entertained and it escalates the events quite well as as is usual with his movies at this time. No, it starts with a robbery and then things escalating to usually fairly to even extremely absurd uh, levels. Uh, but it is somber and darker in tone at times, and uh, somewhat drawn out towards the end, but quite uh, quite okay. I mean, it's uh, it's very, very solid, but I went from Monday to that, and Monday still was a few notches uh, better in, in my book, but by no means a waste or, like, Sabu repeating himself. Definitely not. It was very entertaining. And uh, Drive? 
adds a neat layer of familiarity uh, familiarity again and uh, treading somewhat new ground at the same time because obviously at this time he usually worked with one leading actor and that is uh, Shinichi uh, Sotsumi and his uh, character who uh, gets uh, kidnapped essentially by a couple of robbers and they ask him to uh, act as their driver. Uh, he has a migraine problem too and he has to deal with these gang of robbers, you know, adding to the stress. And it's a journey again, this time by car. So uh, they're not running, they're not walking, they're not on their bicycles or anything. So, but but there is some like uh, dark tu- dark touches of humor, some unexpected ones, uh, touches and some wacky humor and some surreal scenes as well. I mean, well, one of my favorite scenes in uh, Drive is Terajima, uh, Sabu's uh, often uh, called upon uh, bit actor or supporting actor in his movies. One of the he's he's one of the robbers that decides that his career path is being a singer in a punk rock band instead. It's that scene where he gets on stage and just starts shouting at the audience, "You're worthless! You're worthless!" He's not even singing, and they love it. Like the audience at that gig, they love it. And he thinks to himself, "I'm doing this now instead." Sorry, guys. So the whole gang starts splitting up. So I thought that was quite amusing, and I always love uh, Terjima, <laughs> whatever he does in Sabu's movies it's a somewhat more contemplative journey i think you even spoke about that in terms of drive and it's it's all it's also at the same time quite free for all but not as screamy as a movie like monday which is just out of this world wild as i said before but it's at the same time not as quiet as blessing bell so it's somewhat in the middle of monday and blessing bell uh, but it still feels like a very Sabu-esque film uh, from like this run of films uh, during this time. It's hilarious and deadpan, hilarious, deadpan type of humor at points, and uh, it's I, I liked it a bit better than Unlucky Monkey. It has some layers to it that uh, makes it uh, memorable, some uh, personal dramatic layers, uh, and uh, a very solid movie, even if not my utmost favorite out of the bunch I'd watched at that point. So to repeat a little, by the way, of your impressions of Sabu, and to give listeners an idea who. Are jumping into the series right now. Do you, John, think his exposure to Japanese and international audiences have been has been solid throughout the years, or is there still a sense that Sabu is undiscovered and unfairly so? Yeah, that's a good question, um, and I'm still trying to gauge that um, his, you know, how he's uh, seen at least in uh, Japan. Um, you know, obviously, I, I live in the United States now, so um, it's kind of hard for me to canvas a bunch of people just outside the, uh, my door or anything like that. But uh, hey, Sabu, yay or nay? Yay, yeah, good. Right, exactly. Thank you, neighbor. Have a good day. Exactly. I mean, you know, he's certainly known enough to have a name because uh, I, at least if I gauge it from my wife, you know, my, my wife's Japanese and she's really into classic uh, Japanese film. She has n- very little interest in uh, modern film. So she doesn't know actors and directors. Uh, I mean, more contemporary actors and directors. But she had heard of Sabu, certainly. She was like, oh, yeah, yeah. And I've heard of him, but I've never, never seen any of his films. And then, uh, you know, I've gone on the internet and just kind of, you know, scoured movie websites and blogs and, you know, message boards. And, you know, I think it seems like he has a pretty solid following of of uh, people who are, you know, at least know his name and, you know, know that, you know, well, yeah, he did these comedy films and, you know, he's a pretty good director, that kind of thing. You know, they have an opinion about him. Don't think he's in any way commercial. Um, I think if we just even look at his filmography, we can kind of tell that he doesn't, 
he doesn't have any films that are in the commercial realm of Japanese film. Uh, the closest thing he might have is Connie Coulson, which we'll talk about next episode, which was a, um, a book that was written, uh, uh, excuse me, it was uh, based on a book that was written back in the uh, 1920s and pretty famous book uh, among uh, Japanese people. But I wouldn't necessarily call the themes or the context uh, of the story um, in any way commercial itself. Just the fact that uh, he was able to not um, to adapt a novel that has such classic status, um. and, and even his uh, appearance in or supporting role in Ichi the Killer isn't necessarily like the springboard for people to go from. Aha! I, I like that actor. Let's look him up because uh, he he's not uh, you know front and center if I understand things correctly in Ichi the Killer. He isn't, but his face is distinctive enough, you know, because, you know, back then when Ichi Ichi the Killer came out here in the U.S., I think I was, no, wait, no, I was still in Japan when it initially came out. But then when it finally made its way out here, you know, and I had heard, oh, you know, one of the actors is actually a director, this guy Sabu, and I'm like, which one? (laughs) I don't know which one he is, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you look at, you know, stills of Ichi the Killer, you're like, well, it could be any of these guys, right? (laughs) But then when you actually see his picture, like, oh, that guy. Okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's got kind of a – he's got actually got a good face for, like, Yakuza-type characters. And that's what he sort of made his little of a name that he made uh, when he was an actor, was, you know, doing these kind of bit parts as the uh, – as, like, the side thug type of uh, Yakuza guy. Even in his uh, own movies, I think he plays um, like in uh, Postman Blues or something like right, that. In, right. the whole, in the whole finger cutting scenario, I think he, he's possibly the one who cuts a finger off uh, of someone else, though. In the, but, but right, yeah. I, I kind of almost thought he was like uh, that was like an inside joke with his friend. You know, it's like, hey, look, I still can't do a lead role even in my own films. <laughs> but but yeah, you're right. I mean, that, that, that's the impression I'm getting too. That he's there is a buzz when a Sabu film is announced, whether it's primarily the buzz is in Japan or in the international audience's eyes but the the festival play and the various even english language reviews and interviews that that you read means that he's not this super on the fringe director at least but not oh, no no uh, but 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 not like a uh, you know a kitamura you know uh, uh, versus kitamura but, uh, for some reason that name popped up Maybe that's unfair, but it's not. Uh, he's not uh, the big Michael Bay of Japan or anything. He's uh, plowing his own path. So not at all. Yeah. And in fact, uh, actually, go back to the original question you asked about international audiences. I, I don't want to go off and say that you know he's probably better known outside of Japan because that that's kind of a hard claim to make. For one thing, only one of his films has ever made it to a DVD, at least here in the West. Very infrequent releases indeed. Uh, that's the point also. To see Sabu's movies, at least subtitled in English, if you rely on that, is quite a task. Um, as we've talked about, we relied on fan sub works and stuff like, stuff like that. I, I had to do that at least. Yeah, oh, yeah, I, I have for the most part too. So, But anyway, it, I think, but internationally speaking at least, I think that he's got a pretty decent name on the... Um, on the uh, festival circuit at the very least. I, I don't think he's ever had like a, any kind of wide release um, 
anywhere or even a limited release. But, you know, my impression is that, you know, like his films will hit, you know, New York Asian Film Festival and people who are New York Asian Film Festival filmgoers will know him because, oh, yeah, he's that guy who did that funny comedy five, six years ago that was also at the festival or, you know, or I even like asked some of my uh, film festival type friends here in San Francisco Bay Area and they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know. I know who that guy is. I saw such and such back in 1995 or whatever, you know. So I think he's got a decent name, yeah, at least in the festival circuits, but probably not much. So to me, like, you know, there are different levels of, you know, your dedication toward, you know, Asian cinema. You know, I mean, that's just how it is, right? Not everyone's going to be as hardcore as, you know, the person who's out there in Japan or Hong Kong or whatever, you know who's, you know, actively searching for this stuff. It's just very difficult to do that kind of thing. But, um, you know, to me, he has still really hasn't penetrated, I think, like the, the, the common Asian cinema fans, you know. Maybe not really meant to or aiming to do that because he's still, he's still getting work, obviously. Uh, so it's not like uh, it's been 15 years since since he made a movie, not at all. I mean, he's, he's, he's got 2014 and 2015 credits, I believe, uh, on, on film and TV. Yeah, I'm not trying to say he's, he's actively doing that, but I'm just saying that for whatever reason, he just, in some ways, you could say, oh, it's unfair, or maybe it's just like, you know, it's, it's you know, it's maybe it's because he's uh, just been too underrated or something. I don't, whatever reason you can throw out there, you know, it just has not really penetrated yet, you know, like, I mean, I, I can't think of it, you know, Asian cinema is kind of like, slightly gone downhill at least outside of you know asia you know i think recently so it's kind of hard to like think of it of um you know actors and directors now that i could compare to but like you know if we think about when asian cinema was really big like let's say seven eight years ago you know it's like you know that would that would have been the prime time for him to finally get like his say so to speak you know and it just didn't happen for whatever reason you know maybe distributors thought that his films weren't, you know, offbeat enough. <laughs> that, that, that that would be kind of a strange uh, way to think of his films as not being offbeat enough. But you know, he's just he's just walking. That's too common of an idea. Yeah, right. What happened to the running? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so uh, you know, for whatever reason, you know, I think he hasn't penetrated this sort of Asian film consciousness enough just yet. And you know, maybe that's coming soon. Who knows? Speaking of like sort of not working commercially let's talk of him working with commercial elements actors in this case so before we move nice in segue, Ken. indeed and i know my crap i've been doing this for a number of years uh so before we may move on to the main movie to discuss which is dead round we've done the same in this episode in terms of we we picked select movies out of sabu's filmography to discuss in terms of the main review on the show, but we wanted to touch upon as many as possible, despite in his filmography. Uh, so and and keep the series kind of short. So we skipped Hard Luck Hero from 2003 and Hold Up Down from 2005 for main discussion. But we are here to briefly talk of our views on them. So I'll throw it over to you, John. Why don't you start to give to give us um, by giving us a quick take on these two movies and, and maybe a plot rundown if you have it. Uh, and they both, by the way, star Japanese boy band V6 that clearly Sabu saw something in. I don't think these were thrusted upon him like, hey, 
have a boy band and do some crap with them. <laughs> but uh, then again, I'm, I'm just guessing. What do you know about V6 is also my question, if you have any impression of uh, this uh, boy band. So the floor is yours. Uh, hard Luck Hero, first of all. I think what actually happened is, and I'll mention this in the uh, synopsis of Hard Luck Hero, is that uh, originally Hard Luck Hero was uh, slated to be a music video. And if you watch the film and you look at essential elements, I think you can actually see that, oh yeah, that makes sense, you know, now I think of it. And I guess what happened was uh, both uh, Sabu and V6 just liked the idea of the uh, storyline so much that it became a full-length film. Uh, So Hard Luck Hero, it uh, basically breaks V6. Now V6 is, you know, V, I don't actually know what that stands for. I I read different interpretations and they're all kind of, you know, whatever. (laughs) Uh, But let me go into actually talking about V6. V6 is a is boy band, or in Japan it's called an idol group. Of course, there's six guys. Half of the group, so three of the guys, if, you, if you're not into math, half the group is kind of... <laughs> Thank you, John, for that, for helping me out. Like, half, two? No, can't just, wait, just wanted to make sure, you know. <laughs> I know that Swedish math is a little different. Oh, yeah, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, so three of the guys are a little older. They're like, I think... Um, Maybe in, I think they're in their 40s by now. Actually. Really? I think they're around my age. Yeah. And then the other half of them are a little younger. So they're kind of they're probably more in their early 30s now. I'm not too sure you know, what the concept of the band is. I guess it's kind of like old generation, new generation or something, something like that anyway. But there's a reason why there's you know half of them are older and half are younger. And anyway, um, so they were they are still fairly popular uh, among you know i guess girls that are still into boy bands um but they their main popularity lied around this time these films came out so that's like uh i think about late 90s early 2000s is when i would hear them a lot you know whatever on the radio or just you know shopping centers and stuff like that i'm not a big fan of j-pop in, to begin with and i mean i don't really get too annoyed by i mean their music is very fluff oriented you know it's just you know six guys and yeah that's right v6 do suck (laughs) (laughs) that was a little commentary from my dog right there um so you know it's just like they're just a boy band and you know they they're not great singers but they don't suck horribly either you know um they're just like fluff oriented and just kind of like you hear them in the background you're like okay it's a you know whatever it's them again you know that kind of thing so it's not exactly enjoyable it's not torturous either it just sort of flies over your head so yeah they were popular around this time period which kind of makes sense uh because you know um you know why not do a music video and why not get a director who knows how to do you know action style comedy you know this is, i guess it's a perfect matchup and actually i do remember both of these films being kind of uh advertised enough on tv you know, to warrant at least Sabu getting a little attention, which is kind of nice. But uh, back to the films. Let me s- try to summarize them. And you'll have to pardon my uh, s- my uh, synopses as sounding a little bit on the uh, commercial side, as if I'm writing like the uh, promo or of some sort for these movies. But that's just how I write. So, you know, I don't know deal with it, I guess. <laughs> but uh, anyway, Hard Luck, Hard Luck Hero breaks V6 into thirds. So that means actually within the film... There are three groups of them in pairs, um, and they represent, you know, basically three different uh, kind of character types, I guess you could say. But uh, these characters, their stories are intertwined at an illegal uh, Muay Thai boxing match. 
Ishii and Okada, those are the character names, are participants in the boxing match, and they're fleeing from Yakuza due to a botched botched boxing fix. Uh, Fujita and Kuro, two of the air characters, are young delinquents uh, looking to pay back the son of a Yakuza by stealing from another Yakuza. And Ikemoto and Kishiyama, who are the last two characters here, are two men who, before a big presentation at work, have lent, have lunch and end up in the wrong place at the wrong time. And uh, speaking of wrong place and wrong time, well, that's where all six of them meet in a big smash-up finale, which, uh, you know, of course, we're not going to um, not going to spoil. Yeah, yeah. well, the floor is yours in terms of uh, quickly reviewing it. So what did you think of Hard Luck Hero? I thought it was really fun. When we say boy band or idol group or whatever, we kind of disparage that, oh, my God, it's going to be this vehicle for them to sing and dance and all this stuff but they don't really do any of that in in actually either of these films to tell you the truth i I mean their music is featured in each of the films but it's you know again it's something you can just fast forward or just turn off if you want well it never stops uh, to be a music video that's also a point like that that would have been excruciating like but in any case it's not an hour and a half music video yeah yeah that's right good thing and you know actually i think the the group actually kind of um makes themselves out to be make themselves out to be uh, pretty good comic actors um you know their reactions are pretty suitable they can do the physical part of things because if you're going to be in one of these sabu comedy films you have to be able to do stunts and you have to be able to run you know certainly you know, no walking right i thought it was uh, very interesting that they centered around this uh this muay Thai boxing match and there's some pretty good hilarious moments uh there's one moment where um i, I think i sent you the video um uh kenneth but uh, in a muay thai boxing match there's a tradition in uh before they actually start fighting uh in which there's uh it's almost like i think it's actually a spiritual tradition or maybe it's just a cultural tradition i'm not too sure but they play music and they do this sort of like a uh, dance what we in the West would call dancing, but I think it's supposed to have some cultural meaning to mm-hmm. it. And you'll have to excuse me for not doing enough, uh, doing much research on the actual uh, dancing. But at one point, um, you know, as I mentioned, there's one character, uh, there's one set of characters, excuse me, who one of the characters has to kind of fill in for a boxer um, who has, I believe he didn't show up to the match or something. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, this guy, he's not, he's not Thai, he's one of, one of V6, so, you know, he's a Japanese guy, and he doesn't, he doesn't know how to box you know, worth a damn, but... He's you know, one, as well. Right, yeah, he's really skinny. And, you know, Muay Thai boxers are actually kind of skinny, too. Some of them. He obviously doesn't look Thai, but, you know, I guess you could sort of say he passes for maybe half or 25%. But anyway, so his main instruction is to throw the match in the second round, which is kind of a part of a lot of the humor of the film. And I think if you haven't seen the film, you can already imagine sort of what happens, but um, they do uh, reenact this moment, this cultural moment where, you know, before the match, you know, they start playing music and he's like, what am I supposed to do now? And the guy, and the guy, his friend who actually sets him up uh, to be the, the boxer, you know, in this match says, just dance, you know, and then he's kind of doing this sort of like, it's almost, it almost looks like slow break dancing, you know. <laughs> and if you look at the actual, I mean, just do a Google, uh, excuse me, a YouTube search of Muay Thai pre-match, you know, ceremony or something like that. You can see it's completely different from, you know, what's supposed to be, uh, what uh, what uh, he's supposed to do if he was a, you know, real 
boxer. And uh, actually, one of the Yakuza notices that, and he says, like, I've never seen this before. And then his uh, Yakuza buddy says, this must be the new style. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of, uh, you know, the whole match itself is is pretty um, is pretty entertaining. But then, you know, the film goes off into other directions of, you know, chases and and everything uh, that we actually come to expect out of a Sabu film. And in general, I would say that... Uh, it's both an interesting and a quite entertaining film. I, I agree. It, it's solid fun. And uh, it partly, especially compared to Hold Up Down, which I like more, it feels like sort of like a Sabu quickie. That quickie feel is not something that reduces its like filmmaking quality necessarily. The main interest here is that I looked at this in terms of, okay, he this is starring a boy band. Who is controlling the movie? Is it... The people behind the boy band, or is it Sabu? Clearly, it's Sabu. So it's not a corporate product. Is uh, they're there to fit his vision or this vision with some coaching, possibly? Because I don't know if this was one of their first main roles or or their first main roles uh, in movies. Uh, you alluded to off air that uh, one of the members or, or one or two of the members have gone on to do movies as uh, or on their own or on his own, right? And and TV acting, yeah. It's uh, and, and it's very entertaining that whole. Uh, set piece of the boxing match that we see it over and over from different characters views it's not repetitive at, at all in like this like bad way it's very entertaining because there are layers revol- revealed in terms of all the events that go on surrounding the uh, botched uh, fix there i mean there, there is violence and there is uh, people that steal a briefcase and then run out and then everybody eventually is on the road though despite those repeated events it's not at all boring to see the boxing match repeated it's quite funny because the way it ends like that botched attempt is uh, quite uh, surprising initially and still fun to watch over and over again but having said that all of that over and over again comment it's only 78 minutes you can't complain really about a movie that is wise enough. I thought it was the perfect length too. You know, I mean, we mentioned that, you know, it was originally it was set to be a music video and they could have really just sort of like gone, you know, crazy with, with uh, the ideas, you know, but, you know, I thought there was this film, you know, even though, you know, there's a lot of action going on, it has a pretty remarkable amount of restraint as far as its length is concerned. Yeah. It's because sometimes, Directors are pushed to reach a certain level, whether you're talking Korea, which where directors have said, uh, you know, are said to be forced, like, uh, be forced to, like, extend it to two hours 20. Like, well, really? I mean, we don't have any. Just do it. Because in Korea, it's expected for whatever reason. You know, it's the big joke of Korean cinema that is too long. Yeah, uh, I always say watching a Korean film is like having a part-time job. <laughs> it doesn't hit you emotionally, but it's uh, because some drama is there because each some of the characters or maybe each of them have a a reason to flee. You know, uh, there, there's a desperation uh, that they want to flee from not just a boxing match but other things as well. But and it's all told with clarity and playfulness, uh, and it, it's good fun. But not uh, if you were to compare, it's not like up to monday level or even drive level but it's good solid fun at 78 minutes and uh, my, my favorite scene to quote is uh, because uh, susumu terajima is back here for a bit part playing a, a yakuza with a, a pencil thin mustache 
which he also has in Dead Run, by the way. So I wonder if that was Terajima's own personal look at <laughs> this time for a number of years. But I love that he is punching out anyone violently with one punch who doesn't clap like his Yakuza boss does. Like, clap and then boom! <laughs> I love that. It's, uh, you know, it's not this like boom, but rather this... And he's making obviously angry sounds at the same time. He's wonderful in the movie, like a uh, wonderful face per default, Terajimas. He makes the most out of, out of a bit part. Um, uh, clearly, in working with Sabu, he's uh, good at making the most out of uh, a bit part. And uh, they, they clearly gel as uh, director and actor uh, working together. So, And, and it doesn't feel um, like this big commercial for the band. It might have acted fairly well as a commercial for the band. You know, getting them attention, getting the movie. I, th- I think, yeah, if I remember correctly, it was kind of promoted that way. Um, just remembering TV commercials. I think the, on YouTube, I believe there's a video of the um, the premiere, you know, and it's suitably pretty, you know, glitzy. And, you know, there's the group is up there and they're just having a good old time. But I think, you know, like you said, though, I, I don't think they overshadow the film. I think that a Western audience watching this film would not even know these six guys were actually a boy band um, just by watching the film. It's like six young actors. I mean, I, I, right. I went into it just because it's mentioned on the Wikipedia page that it stars a boy band, but that, that didn't mm-hmm. like make me go, oh. Uh, but again it's Sabu's movie and that's the point so and and they do well but they do better in Hold Up Down for me but I'm gonna let you uh, take the floor again share your opinion of Hold Up Down and uh, the plot synopsis for us okay well Hold Up Down the second comedy featuring uh, V6 kind of feels like a continuation uh, in the same spirit of uh, Hard Luck Hero Um, in fact when I watched the the two films back to back uh, I kind of felt like they were almost the same film and I'm not saying that as an insult, but um, just the, the spirit and energy of uh, both of the films, I think, are, are pretty equal, uh, even though, like you said, I think Hold Up Down is, is the better of the two. But anyway, the film is uh, basically starts kind of like, what was it? Was it Monday? It starts with a uh, bank robbery. Uh, Unlucky Monkey. The, um... Unlucky Monkey. Yeah, I'm sorry. That's right. So, But in this case, instead of uh, you know just one lone uh, man, we have uh, two Santa impersonators and... Uh, they rob this bank only to find themselves uh, after that uh, in a pickle because uh, they have the police chasing them. And uh, meanwhile, they're chasing a uh, suicidal Christian truck driver in Japan, no less, who's uh, towing around a frozen Jesus Christ who may have the, quote, key, unquote. And that's for the listener's benefit because I know Kenneth can sort of get what I'm getting at here. So he may have the key to their problems. And does this all sound nutty? Yeah, it sure is and more. There's still some restraint in this film, I, I kind of think, but uh, the comedy is is probably at its highest level, uh, at least up to this point that we've seen with Sabu. Pretty much goes into the territory. I, I mean, none of it is like totally, well, of course, you know, part of a lot of comedy, uh, part of a lot of comedy, excuse me, is, uh, is being ridiculous, but... Um, it's not like too like unhinged. I thought, I thought there was still a lot of, you know, he still weaves in a lot of logic into the humor as ridiculous as it is. I, I, do you know what I'm getting at? Kenneth? At least for the first half. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I think there's uh, once they reach the church again, without going into any details, it, uh, starts playing by a free for all logic, especially when we know 
some of the inhabitants of the church and what their deal is. That's not a slam on the movie either. I think uh, that's very welcome. Uh, like, just do it. <laughs> like, if you have the idea, do it. I mean, it's a it's a wacky comedy. Like, no one is asking for logic here because therefore the frozen Jesus Christ would not be an acceptable element if uh, we were requiring logic here. Yeah, and uh, I guess I should mention the um, the frozen Jesus Christ <laughs> scenes. It's actually not Jesus Christ. It's a hippie that looks like jesus christ but anyway it's a little hard to explain which is good because you know I, I you know i definitely encourage people to to check out this film but uh some of those scenes are some of the best visual gags in all of sabu's films at least up to this point yeah um there's one scene there's one scene actually where the visual effect was pretty jarring for me uh jarring in both like the wow how did they do that as well as the you know as well as the you know laugh out loud uh, type of jarring is that um, at one point uh, there's one character is uh, driving I think it's a car with that the, with the hippie character yeah the two police officers I believe or the or the or the inspectors or something they hit another car if I remember correctly maybe it was a truck excuse me I, I don't the hippie character he doesn't have his seatbelt on apparently and he just flies out the uh, the front window you know. And I, and I was thinking, like, how did they do that effect? You know, I mean, it looked like... Because he flies. He doesn't, like, land in front of the car. He is about a kilometer or a mile away from the car. <laughs> he shoots out like a rocket. Right. I guess it was one of those moments where you're like, you know, was that CG or was that a practical effect? And I guess that's, you know, a, a, to the uh, to the credit of uh, the Sabu and his, uh, his uh, visual effects people, you know, because... You know, it's good enough where you don't really notice it, but then at, at the same time, you're like, how did they do that? You know, did they actually use like a dummy or something? You know, like a weight, a weighed down dummy. But uh, yeah, I thought it was a, it's a great effect that really cracked me up. And like I said, um, that character, the hippie character has some of the best uh, visual moments, even though he doesn't really act in many of the scenes, because obviously, as I mentioned before, he's frozen. <laughs> I assume this is um, uh, a member of V6 as well. Uh, his reactions are quite uh, wonderful when he is more animated. There, there's my favorite scene when this little um, police station, I, I assume they, these are, are in Japan, all over Japan, these little uh, police booths. Yeah. And uh, the police have gathered up several uh, crimes there and they're, they're trying to sort them out like, you were molested. You are a rapist. No, wait a minute. And then they switch, switch them around. Right. You were raped and you were molested. You're the guy who keeps hitting people in the head with a aluminum bat. Then they talk about the robbery, the, the Santa robberies. And he, he knows about them. The hippie knows about them. And his reactions are quite broad, but they're wonderful because he goes, ooh, ooh, <laughs> I know that. Then, then that's one of his last scenes in the flesh. Uh, I, I, I absolutely dug it. It's, it's, it's feels like a sharper movie, even technically, than Hard Luck Hero, uh, even coming from V6. They are very, very good. They feel a lot more comfortable here in yes. my eyes. And uh, th that whole like escalation of a half a botched robbery is uh, a wonderful springboard for very silly humor. You know, even cops are pretty dumb, and even the robbers are pretty dumb. And then the whole like combination of these six go into the these absurd territories that I'm not going to quote because that's the surprise of the movie, and it can become pretty tricky to like connect because that guy is frozen, these guys, and then and then there's kung fu in the ch church. Hello. Where are you going? Like, you, you can't really. You just have to sit down with it because it is quite a wild time. And uh, 
so much fun and quite accessible too. It's not specialized quirky comedy for like a festival audience only. It's quite a general audience friendly, I would say. Yeah. Not too long either. It's not 78 minutes, but it's just quite a swift movie that um, takes some darker turns towards the end, but I'm mainly saying that it takes, it injects like a genre element that you associate with darkness. It's not like it turns dramatically dark. Yeah. It's all fun throughout. And I guess what we need to mention is that whole, that pimped out truck or semi or however you call these things that feature prominently in the film that looks like a big, big like pinball machine on wheels. That is a pimp job on a truck that is quite amazing and it's even it's a reference it's a, it's it's uh, it's called something in japan because there's a wikipedia article on this particular truck so in in short uh, do do you remember that name uh, what what they refer to uh, refer this truck right uh what you're referring to is the dekotora which is a kind of um it's it's, uh, it's a blend of two words uh i already forgot that word in english but uh anyway it's a uh, the blend of two words it's uh decorate and uh truck right so, okay there you go these giant trucks that basically these uh, truck drivers decorate kind of like to make their own. And they uh, they became popularized, popularized actually in film. Uh, there's a series in Japanese film from the 70s uh, called uh, Toraku Yaro, or I, I think it's translated as like Trucking Rascals or something like that. But it's very, very popular comedy series. It's a very 70s thing, like the Trucking Rascals on the road again. <laughs> Exactly. It sounds like, yeah, it sounds like, like, yeah, Smoking the Bandit or something like that. But it was a popular comedy series with uh, with uh, famous um, genre actor uh, Punta Sugawara. It's kind of like a road type of film, but uh, also with uh, a lot of wacky comedy in it. And uh, he drives around this truck that's not decorated as extremely as the one that we saw in the film um, in um I guess that's what popularized, jeez, popularized, I can't say that word today popularized the uh, Dekotra in uh, Japan uh, to begin with. And then there's also another film that it um, uh, the, the truck pops up in uh, that I just remembered is um, uh, Supa no Ona, which is, uh, I guess you could call it Supermarket Woman. That was a film directed by uh, Juzo Itami, who's uh, famous for Tom Popo, as well as uh, The Funeral. Um, and unfortunately, uh, Supermarket Woman is not that easy to find here in the West. But there is a subtitled version that was released in Japan. So um, there might be like, you know, whatever Korean or Hong Kong versions that are, that are, uh, that use the same subtitle, but uh, there's a scene also in there with this big uh, uh, deco truck, which is uh, also used to great comic effect. These must be more for show rather than they're not used for actual transport in daily life. No, they're used for actual transport. They are? Wow. Yeah, Yeah. No, they are. I mean, it's just, it's up to the truck driver, you know, basically if you want to design. Of course, and not all these truck drivers do. I, I think these are our freelancers, actually, you know, guys who contract themselves out to other companies because a company probably would not allow a person to, you know, decorate their own truck. And it, it's and to be fair, also, you know, like I lived in Tokyo uh, or the Tokyo area for about eight years. And I think I've only seen one of these trucks in like the urban areas and most of the time it's these guys that are out in the outer areas um i don't want to say in the country areas that sounds kind of disparaging but um but uh it's not very common to see them in any case in in the more urban areas um 
And no, no, the, and these guys are actually transporting stuff, you know, and it's just a matter of, you know, hey, you know, it's just like with anyone else who tricks out their car or whatever, you know, it's like right. it's an extension of yourself or your ego or whatever it is that you, you want to call it. Uh, so, you know, hey, why not do it? It's fun, you know, costs a lot of money, too, though. I should mention there are actually a couple of uh, dedicated magazines for deco truck, you know, aficionados. Um, so it's it's quite an interesting sort of like subculture, I guess you could say. And it becomes a transport device, if you will, for the movie. And it's it you notice it, of course. It's it's almost its own character, but it's not just a little bit pimped out. It's a big old alive thing that the production probably borrowed. They didn't like pimp their own truck just because they had some boy band money or whatever <laughs> you know actually one more note i had about uh, uh these deco trucks is that um back in the playstation one era and i know that a lot of your listeners probably already know that i'm a big video game fan uh back in the playstation one era anyway there was actually a a deco truck racing game which you could design your own trucks you know and trick them out however you wanted to and then race them. Of course, this wasn't a multiplayer game. It was just a one uh, single player game. So you had to race against the uh, the computer uh, AI. But uh, just the fact that you can have a game like that, you know, who who would ever think of that a deco decorate deco truck racing game? Only in Japan, I guess you could say. You know, and maybe only released in Japan when all all was said and done. Oh yeah, right. But uh, that's another story for a gaming history podcast. <laughs> yeah, right. But uh, we're not quite done here because there is a minor movie to talk of still in this quick take se- section. And that is the 2003 short movie. See what I did there? Minor, short. And it's called A1012K. And uh, wanna tell us a little bit about that. And you know, you know ever so slightly more than me because I didn't know anything about the origins of this short movie that it uh, had, had some uh, commercial promotional purpose. Yeah, uh, A1012K is actually uh, the name of the model of a, of a cell phone that came out back then. It was 2003. It was a, it was a flip phone. And if I remember correctly, it was produced by uh, Kyocera, who uh, has some presence in the cell phone markets outside of Japan. But in any case, uh, you know, they wanted, of course, to you know, position their phone as you know, the future or the greatest phone ever. And you know, if you see it, if you actually see it, in the promotional video that uh, Sabu directed, it's it looks pretty quaint by modern yeah. terms, you know, <laughs> to say the least. Um, but uh, yeah, it was a it was a promotional video. It's uh, how long was it about like ten minutes long? Fifteen, actually, fifteen, sixteen. Oh, fifteen. Okay, excuse me. So I assume this is something that would play at, for example, like a trade show. Um, I never saw any edited version for TV, but you know, I didn't necessarily watch TV twenty four hours a day when I was in Japan. So, um, but in, in any case, it did come out on a DVD. So I, I assume it, you know, rode whatever popularity Sabu had at the time, because uh, you know, generally such a short sort of of, uh, of a promotional video would not normally be released um, on DVD for uh, you know consumptive purposes. And and it's very simple. I mean, you don't really need to plot to plot summarize it. A robot has escaped. They gotta stop him, and it's called A ten twelve K. But it's a Sabu. Short movie. And that means it's, in this case, it means because we know he can do different things. But in this case, it means pretty silly. But also kind of touching, too. 
Indeed, indeed it is, uh, because it's played very straight, like the military and the scientist. They gotta catch the robot, and we think it's very straight. He's so advanced. He he's almost like hum humans. He can meld in, you know, or melt in, like, uh, and uh, no one will notice uh, that they're walking alongside a robot. They totally would notice because this is just a guy who's got a bit of silver on him and a funny little hat that says what he's called, and he walks like that. <coughs> I love that contrast. I think many movies have done that where they have straight men that are engaged in this incredibly silly scenario of trying to catch the robot with all his amazing arsenal at his disposal like the carrot gun. Well, he's dressed up, I should mention that to give a little context. You probably caught it within the film, but he's dressed up basically like a green grocer, I guess we call him, or a uh, produce uh, grocer. So I guess that that was part of their idea of designing this robot robot that could uh, blend in with society because he's basically dressed up like a grocer, you know, and he has these weapons that are based on vegetables. But but the fun thing is uh, up until like, let's say, the 14-minute mark, again, it's 16 or 15, I thought it was... Great, silly fun, no grander scheme, but, and I won't go into any details because you, if you find it, experience it for yourself, it actually has dimensions. And it's also a promotional tool, per definition, but they let Sabu make his short movie and made sure to have the phone visible in some shots. And I think the, uh, the, the corporate, uh, sections of the, uh, of, of the production team, the, the ones that wanted this to be, a promotional tool. I hope they were satisfied, but um, it, it is rather sweet and touching when it's all said and done, and very funny. It's very sabu, and it's definitely something that, you know, much like the uh, V6 films that are kind of like his thing rather than someone else's thing, you know, which is kind of nice. Yeah, very, very much so, uh, because it could have been like, uh, you know, who are you going to call? Well, I've got my phone. What is this call? It's call A1012K. It's a good phone. You know, it could have been so transparent, but it isn't. So I'm, I'm glad that uh, they let him do his little thing, and um, because he, he didn't like set out to like make the brand look bad or anything. Who knows? I mean, it's obviously not widely on the market today because it's not a modern, modern smartphone. But uh, in 2003, it, it apparently was. So who, who knows what kind of life it had? Well, since I have some knowledge of cell phones kill sarah makes some of the worst phones so it probably didn't have much of a life <laughs> right on let's move on to the actual main review and uh things are gonna get the darker and a little more bit more difficult to discuss at least for me this is uh, was a tough uh, cookie to uh, untangle a little bit but the movie that we are going to talk of extensively here if you will is dead run from 2005 and the plot is a bit problematic here. It's from the Twitch review of the film, and I found it hard to summarize it more like uh, in one of those like back on on the back of the DVD box way, you know, in a world where <laughs> one man must stand up <laughs> and he goes to church, and that's that. But uh, so I'll summarize it as best I can based on their re- review here. So pardon me if it sounds up. Uh, a bit fragmented, and, and I hope uh, you, you get the idea. We, we won't uh, summarize the entire movie, obviously, but here we go. Ultimately, it is a dark, pessimistic tale of one character falling and falling hard. So the review that I quote will quote really covers some plot beats, but not all in a regular plot summary way. So to quote the review, Shuji's 
childhood, and Shuji is played by actor Yuya Chigoshi. Shuji's childhood home is part of a seaside village until developers create a new community by using landfill. Thereafter, the village is known as Shore, while the former landfill is christened Offshore. And there one day, Shuji's bicycle breaks down and a tough but surprisingly kind Yakuza, and this is Susumu Terajima in a bit part, in a wonderful bit part actually, gives him a lift. The ride is eye-opening, thanks to an amorous exchange between the Yakuza and his girlfriend. Years pass and Shuji enters his teens, and he develops a crush on a fellow classmate called Eri, played by Hane Ken, who likes to run and attend church, but to gain her attention, Shuji also takes up running and visits Eri's church with his brother Shuichi, his older brother, I believe. The three sit in the otherwise empty church one night and listen to Father Yuichi preach before the older brother Shuichi begins mocking the priest, and rumor has it that Yuichi murdered a man in his youth. But Shuji does continue to visit the church more often to uh, his brother's uh, you know, self-righteous disgust. And what happens shortly after this? A new set of real estate developers arrive, uh, the kind with black hats and firm hands, and local residents are driven, driven to sell out to make way for a resort. But the father, Yuichi, is a holdout which doesn't bode well for his future. And to further muddy the waters, Eri, the girl Yuichi falls in love with, takes a fateful run along the same narrow road where a truck carrying huge rocks is having trouble balancing its load. They all always run at the side of the road where there's always uh, truck traffic but not uh, decked out trucks like in the former former review. So that that's kind of what I'm, what I'm going to end at. Uh, but as the Berliner Künstler program says about the film, uh, Shuichi and Iris' relationship leads them to encounter fundamental questions like fate, guilt, death and religion. So this is not a wacky Zabu movie. No. no, this is almost completely dark. Where's uh, my frozen Jesus? <laughs> it's based on the two-volume novel Shiso by Japanese writer Kiyoshi Shigematsu, and his works have been adapted into films subsequently, and in the form of The Bluebird and Your Friend, both in 2008. And the latest adaptation is for 2015 is a movie called Again, which is based on his novel Kiroi Jo. And the movie Dead Run, of course, uh, did a tour of the festival circuit, as per usual with Sabu's films, and won at least one award, the Best Feature Fiction Award at the International Film Festival in Syracuse. So just a quick question, are you at all familiar with those movies that came out of uh, Kyoshi's, um, uh, Kyoshi's work, John? I've only heard of them, but not seen any of them. And also, I, I want to note that uh, Shigematsu actually was involved with some work that uh, some of our audience might uh, know about. He was involved in a uh, video game uh, on the X Xbox 360 uh, called uh, Lost Odyssey. I believe it was an RPG. I've not played the game, but um, he apparently penned a uh, series of short stories that basically act as the uh, backstories of uh, one of the game's characters. And uh, I know I know the game was actually uh, very well received in both uh, Japan as here, as well as here. Excuse me. So I assume that uh, these uh, short stories were pretty well read. Uh, it seems like I don't know much about this uh, this uh, author, but uh, it seems like he is fairly well known. He works in different mediums, as you know, novels, short stories, um, as we mentioned, video games, TV, movies. Uh, he's, he's even done stage plays, apparently, uh, as far as what I read. So, sounds like he's got a solid uh, uh, ground that he's standing on. 
and they're one of the works, Shizu, as we said, which is the basis for Dead Realm. You can you can find it quite cheap on Amazon in the US, but my search only resulted in a Japanese language pressing of the two volumes. So I'm not sure it was ever translated into English, Shizu uh, in particular. But uh, that, that's the kind of minor background. My quick note on the film. So again, get ready for a Sabu you're not going to have fun with for two hours. It's his longest film too. This is gloom and pessimism, low-key dramatics, but a compelling dark tale that's obviously a downward spiral kind of dark tale for our main character. Again, we won't spoil, spoil the entire movie. But Sabu does rise to the challenge uh, of making this uh, affecting. And uh, this is a fine departure from his comedy roots. So that's my brief opinion for now. What did you think in short of uh, Dead Run, John? I'm still kind of trying to make a decision on it because, you know, I, I watched it about a week ago and um, I think there are some really interesting elements of the story. I feel like they, there's something missing that kind of binds these elements together. One of the problems I think with the film is it's it's running length. It's it's a bit long, and you know, whereas we you know we said with the um, his a lot of his comedy films, you know, they just kind of play and you kind of forget about the time, you know. And even Blessing Bell, I think, you know, just had a nice pace, and you know, it just didn't feel like it was all that long, really. But this film, I was kind of watching the clock every once in a while and thinking, like, okay, where's this going? You know, can I like move on do something else or should i wait for something to happen you know should i pause the film here so i can you know take care of the dog or should i just wait and have her suffer a little bit you know so so i guess that that was part of it and our part of it i think is that um you know some of the elements of of the film are are very interesting but i think they are sometimes at times kind of um, betrayed by some elements I thought were a little like obvious. And maybe this didn't necessarily jump out to you uh, when you watch the film. But, you know, you notice that there are uh, there are two sets of brothers, right? There's uh, was it Shuichi and Shuji, Yuichi and Yuji. And, you know, it's like the names of the two brothers are so similar. It's just a matter of in Japanese just changing technically just changing one character, you know, for each of the, each of the sets of names, right? Again, Yuichi Yuji, Shuichi Shuji. Okay, well, these guys are supposed to be, like, they're the same people, basically, right? I mean, Shuichi is Yuichi, you know? It, it, it's pretty easy to pick up on, pick up on connections because it's often told to us as well. Uh. And there's also, yeah, there's also the fact that, you know, the uh, each set of brothers can be seen as, you know, dualities of each other, you know, the good one and the bad one, you know? The father and the murderer, and then with the with the younger set, you know, you have the good son and the bad son. You know, so those elements sort of sometimes really kind of—I don't want to say annoyed me. It's kind of too strong of a term, but they they, they stood out so much that uh, you know that's like all I could think about. You know, like just trying to you know trace these you know these lineages and trying to figure out you know what that means in the entire story whereas you know you should be really concentrating on the story and not trying to you know concentrate so much on you know this is the good one this is the bad one and what does it all mean you know i mean that's something that you should think about a little later on you know after you finish the film really you know? sure and, and and i i i totally get that and understand that it didn't strike me as such but uh, and i'm not making excuses for sabu when i'm saying this but maybe being somewhat new to drama maybe this was his safety net i believe or maybe did did this was his idea to make it maybe it did, didn't occur that it was overly clear right well and 
I, I actually want to be fair here and say we gotta have to remember this as adaptation. So maybe the characters in the original story were also named that. So you know, I shouldn't take it out so much on the film, but maybe. But I guess in film form, that's just how it stands. Is that you know you just sort of concentrate on these things a little bit more than you probably should. You know, um, you know one thing actually I want to ask you about Ken was um, you know you mentioned the film being you know particularly gloomy. The very end, the final scene, it actually really kind of flips the table. You know, and kind of comes out as being almost a little optimistic. Sure. And I was wondering how you felt about that sudden shift. You know. You know, did it work for you or I, I didn't never felt it was sudden. I mean, I wasn't like demanding the movie to be thoroughly dark all through. I mean, some dark things happen to some characters and I, I didn't mind it. It uh, it wasn't like this whole thank God relief finally. But I felt it was part of uh, for me the affecting story of uh, a number of characters. Uh, some who make it, some who don't, and uh, these uh, these made it. And I, I I didn't ponder it too much, to be honest. Uh, and now that you ask me, I had no real problems uh, with it. Uh, I didn't feel it was... I'm not saying you feel this way, but I, I didn't feel it was like a betrayal of prior mood or anything. I just thought, like, hey, why not? That was nice. Yeah, I don't want to say it's a, uh, it's a betrayal, but I thought it really stood out as being particularly literary there are two other moments I can point out that were sort of like more on the literary side. There's, there's one moment where one of the brothers realized the good brother realizes that uh, his, his brother has um, is the one who has committed uh, arson and he starts howling like a dog. That was the only moment I never understood that, that, that came out of nowhere. So um... I mean, I saw that as being a, a very much a literary device. You know, he's basically the howl. He's howling for the loss of his brother, you know, kind of like, you know, it's he's expressing his his misery or his sadness toward the situation. There are other dogs in the neighborhood that are howling at the same time. So Yeah, yeah, I, I just wanted to briefly bring back to how because I went in with zero expectations, which is good for once that you don't know anything so you 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 all you notice already that the feel is different uh, you know we have uh, a fairly picturesque like coastal or small town and these quiet still shots of houses and silence in general and vistas and uh, it's very minimal and it's there's it, a soothing piano score every now and again but it, it starts to ask fairly heavy questions which will you know, it's present in the film, a sort of a, sort of heavier questions, and certainly Christianity is there. But, you know, I, I remained interested throughout uh, the, um, the, uh, the way it developed. And, uh, for, for instance, there, there's, an, there's an earlier scene where the younger brother, the good brother, asks about mortality. And uh, some adults dodge questions, and some in his surroundings tell it like it is which sets up a family dynamic that still isn't doesn't guarantee that family will make it the 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 whole like setting seems like totally infected and that's why this is a very pessimistic pessimistic film there's not a whole lot of characters that come out of these two hours intact for for me it was fairly effective commanding time uh where after we witnessed this character fall down uh, hard I, I won't say who it is though necessarily even though we hinted at it hinted at it but I, I also wanted to ask you one thing voiceover is something i don't normally um 
view favorably. There are examples where voiceover is so critical and so well done. Goodfellas good, uh, is an example of that. Here is a curious use of voiceover where we don't know who it is necessarily that's talking to us. And it seems like that character is talking to someone else. One of the brothers. Well, yeah, we find out at the very end. That, 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 that's why I asked you about the ending. But uh, just go go ahead with the rest of your question. Sorry. Yeah, I, I was wondering how you felt that worked as a device in this film. Uh, that that uh, choice in voiceover structure. You know, this is another example of a literary device being used in, in a filmic sense. And, you know, whether it's successful or not is kind of up to you as you know, as a viewer as to, you know, like how you follow the narrative and how you actually end up understanding how the narration, you know, its place in the film, I guess I should say. And that, that's why I asked you about this final scene, because we finally realize who it is that's talking and who they're talking to. So, you know, that's one part of that final the last scene of the film. Um, I thought it, in general, yeah, it, it did sort of bother me at first. Cause I'm like, you know, who the hell's talking. And one thing is I, I don't need exposition, you know, and show don't tell, you know, it's like, they, as they say, but then it did sort of curiously get me thinking like, you know, the narrator kind of remind me of uh, Boo Radley in uh, to kill a mockingbird where there's this narration going on and you're just really wondering why the heck is this, you know, why is this happening? I mean, obviously, you know, you know, To Kill a Mockingbird is also a, a piece of literature, a more classic uh, piece of literature, uh, I should add, as a qualifier. But, um, but you know, it's this device being used in the film and, you know, it, it, of course it's got to mean something. And, you know, I, I think it works because, you know, again, at the end we've realized what exactly is happening and what has happened to the characters and why they're happening. Um, I think when you're watching the film, like just watching up to that final scene, though, yeah, it's it it's questionable how it works, but then it, it does sort of tie itself up. It, do, it does, it does. And uh, it, it wasn't what made the movie for me necessarily. Thank you that it had voiceover, but it was an interesting device, partly. And uh, so, so I didn't like, uh, I didn't find it um, distasteful in that exposition dump kind of way. Uh, but it, it, it made me curious and maybe confused, but two hours later, I found it. Uh, but I don't know how varied my notes will be other than I think I was involved in the story and was interested in where it was going because it it's not following a set template that we all know because it's not uh, it's not this uh, movie that's made according to the 1A template that mm-hmm. that we see every day so so there there is this interest of how the brothers both approach the issue of Christianity initially one is a bit more open to it because there's the girl, but mm-hmm. also open to it a little bit more as, as a human being. While the brother, older brother, is completely going on misconception that he'd heard. What is it he said? One of the more funnier <laughs> dialogues in the movie. We can't go in there. What if they make us drink chicken blood? He just jumps <laughs> right. to that immediately, the older brother, because that's what they do, right? It's the sign of uh, him being judgmental, ju- judgmental and that, that obviously extends to him just knowing that... That that guy murdered someone. Oh boy, he murdered so many and his entire family. And even confronts him in a later scene, like, tell me how you did it, man. Because he's almost fascinated by, wow, I'm standing in front of a murderer. I'm totally standing in front of a murderer. Tell me how he did it. Did he bleed a lot? And then we find out that it isn't him. Uh, but uh, rather, uh, rather, I don't think this qualifies as a spoiler, but rather it's, um, it's his brother that committed these uh, murders and, and not the actual priest. So, you, you know, I followed that with interest, but also... Not knowing exactly if it was going to be fully dark, 
or even like a common of age tale or even touching at points and we know now that it's fully dark and uh, it kept me interested it is a long film yeah i, I agree but uh, it kept me interested to watch how the structure would be laid down because not a whole lot is revealed even 30 minutes in but i i, I wasn't frustrated about that at all personally uh and just went with it and thought it was affectingly, you know, affecting in a very, very, very dark manner. We, which is a hard sell, I think, to many audience uh, viewers, I think, because there is this, you can fail so hard if you're making a, a gloomy, pessimistic tale. It can just be relentless without any point, of course. Uh, for me, it, like, that ventured over into that, that I was affected by the end, that these fates played out this way. Did it stay with me for a long while after the viewing? That I don't think it did, actually. It's, so it's not the greatest drama I've ever experienced, but, um, knowing Sabu and, uh, how this emotionally played out for me, I, I was glad to be a little bit moved by a Sabu movie and uh, the like his minimal style that is also used in other movies like just a still frame and looking at people usually for quirky quirky humor purposes here it's used in this still drama kind of way which for two hours might sound like the most boring movie ever it, it overall works for me I, I suppose uh, and, uh, but, but it isn't an easy movie to to absorb because it offers up very very little uh bright sides and lights aside from the ending a little bit as we said but um it's good that we have these podcasts because it, it allows us to sort of you know just like if you watch a film and you discuss it with friends afterwards you know these things come out that you kind of realize oh that that's what it is or i am an idiot john told me i was an idiot and i am <laughs> right right exactly <laughs> why didn't i see that before you know, actually, I'm kind of having one of those moments right now. Oh, my um, God. Live on the show, people. Yeah, right. I know. Live live revelation right here. Okay. But, you know, I actually, I think earlier in the episode, I kind of said that, you know, well, a lot of Sabu's films are about, you know, personal change, you know, it's personal revelation, you know, and except for the film that we're going to discuss today. I think I mentioned something that to that degree. But actually, now I'm going to now I'm going to go against what I said there, because this film actually does show a lot of change, but it doesn't show change directly to the characters so much, but it shows change directly i think to the viewer and that's why i think this narration is kind of important you know we realize it's one character talking to another you know in reality this should be something that should be reflecting on the viewer or the reader if you're reading the book you know i don't know how much in detail how much in detail i should go into this you know but really you know i try to take you know the base elements of the story and kind of form a generalized you know conclusion to it is that, you know, a lot of the, the film is having to do with the different vices or things that people have that make them happy in life. You know, religion, the material, you know, it's, you know, the, the drinking and the women, you know, we see that in the sec, the third act of the film, you know, where the, the young character gets involved with the Yakuza, right? Family, the structure of family, you know, the mother and the father and the and the children, you know, how that's supposed to be support you through your life in society. Education, right? All these things that are supposed to make you a real human being. Really, we kind of see in the end, and we'll see this, I think, later in, you know, Connie Coulson to, to a certain degree, that all these things mean nothing if you can't support yourself, if you can't be an individual human being. That's what I kind of feel 
what the message is to not not just not the necessarily the characters, but to the viewer, you know, that this is something that, you know, you have to, you know, is for you. It's a parable or it's a story, but, you know, in reality, it's supposed to be for you, a message for you. And that that's why I think it's kind of interesting, because if we contrast that against Connie Coulson and. I'll make this note later in the next episode when we do talk about that film. I think this message is relatively subtle, whereas in Connie Coulson, it's not so much so, mm-hmm. which I'll, I'll talk about that again a little later. I asked you that question about the final scene because I kind of felt it was a, a little bit abrupt and sometimes it didn't have, it didn't gel with the rest of the film. And I still kind of maintain that. I kind of feel that it's one really uplifting moment happens in the final scene uplifting in a i guess in a visual sense in a uh, you know in a in a uh, film watching type of sense you know and i kind of felt like you know maybe that could have happened throughout the rest of the film a little bit more there are some there are some scenes like you know where the the young boy gets involved with the yakuza uh both in the beginning of the film you know with the susumu uh terajima character as well as later on the film you know with the um the young girl as well as um the miki nakatani character the you know as she's grown grown older and married a different uh yakuza guy or at least she's shacked up with them anyway but um you know, those scenes are very, you know, strong, but, you know, it's kind of like you think, well, the rest of the film is not so much so. And there's there's something with, I think, how maybe the script was written or something that sort of doesn't gel. You know, this film, it, it was released in 2005, kind of follows along a line of other Japanese films that were around that time. And I think, you know, some of these, some of the scenes in this film really remind me of how, um, how uh, you know, uh, fellow Japanese uh, film director um, Hirokazu Koreeda, how he sets up a lot of his films. Have you watched any of uh, Koreeda's films? Not familiar with the director by name, no. Well, his his most famous film is, uh, at least in the West here, is uh, Nobody Knows, which is about children who lose lose their parents and have to make their way in the world, basically. But uh, he's also done uh, Air Doll, which got a fair amount of... Um, of uh critical acclaim and then um recently i wish uh, also got pretty good critical acclaim and afterlife which is one of my favorite of his films well his films are very dead dramas very dead-eyed dramas i should say um they're usually about the corrosion of society you know about the traditions of society you know family you know things like that and and you know again here we go you know we have these same sort of themes that i think sabu's coming out with his film here, with Dead Run, I assume the book also, you know, focuses on these themes. But it's not fair to compare two directors who do two different things, who have their own individual visions about things, of course. But, you know, I think Sabu's film is a little less uh, successful dealing with these themes. And it's unfortunate because now that, you know, again, we're having this discussion, I'm kind of seeing, you know, the sort of, I guess, the depth of the film or the richness of the film. But that's contrasted with, you know, my feeling that, well, he could have gone further, you know, or he could have done this a little bit better. And, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to say because I'm not a filmmaker. It's, you know, so it, it's a little hypocritical for me to say, like, you should do better next time. It's like, well, what have you done as a filmmaker? Well, <laughs> gotcha. I, I, I filmed the short when I was in uh, when I was in junior college. I was thinking about being a filmmaker, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. Right. So, you know, I think as as, you know, in quotes, critic. I think that's kind of maybe fair to say. Furthermore, I mean, to talk a few specifics, uh, it's it's interesting that 
like the main core of Shuji and Iri, their growing connection, which is not really about romance, because she one of the first things she does is to say in class, I don't like it. So you got that, and it's not like the end is, no, I love you, I regret it. It's not calculated like that, but it's inter- it was an interesting journey for me to follow how they grew closer, despite it emotionally not being high-frequency bonding on screen. It's very quiet and, uh, and and not really super friendly at all times either. Because, uh, on occasion, she says, like, what are you doing here? Uh, I think um, even after she's hurt herself, you know, she her, legs, uh, her leg gets hurt after that accident. I described it a plot synopsis. Uh, it, it, still, it still got me, you know, it, the, interest, uh, the interest as it grew darker and even pessimistic. Uh, it interested me whether focusing on both them or uh, Shuji on his own, because there's a big section when he goes to the city. Kind of all hell breaks loose at that point. Uh, not that the city is the catalyst, but the, that's the more violent moments of uh, of the movie. Oh, I was going to say, I, I thought it was kind of clever that uh, he cast a uh, a Japanese-Korean uh, actress for that role, too. Um, Hanai Kang is actually, uh, she's Korean by blood, but uh, born in Japan. Right, right, right. And uh, actually pretty a pretty good actress, um, still kind of up and coming. And I think it's kind of interesting because the, the film does touch on things like discrimination, you know, based on where you're from, as well as discrimination based on your race, too. So um, kind of clever because, you know, at first I was looking at her, I was like, that looks Korean, you know, I and I kind of remembered, oh, yeah, that's right. I saw her. And, and actually, she's in um, Hirokazu Koreeda's uh, Nobody Knows. Uh, the two films share, actually, a couple of uh, actors. And then I kind of realized, oh, you know, that's kind of clever casting. You know, I don't know if that was intentional or if she was generally, you know, the best actress for that uh, for that particular role, you know. And for more so, some, specifics, uh, some specific moments that has to do with, uh, I, I mentioned that, there's some kind of infection going on here that in particular uh, derails or disrupts this family that Shuichi uh, is part of. I mean, uh, it's it's kind of a non-family when all is said and done, you know. The older brother gets caught cheating early in the movie. They're, they're, he's a model student, uh, seemingly, and the family is overjoyed. And then it turns out that he's very much not and uh, quickly goes insane, really. And there's a chilling moment when Shuichi knows that at night, his older brother has been going out, possibly setting other houses on fire, and the older brother pulls a knife on his brother. He, he, he doesn't hold it against his uh, neck or anything, but he just p- pulls it out and holds it close to his body, and I, I thought it was a really effective little beat, you know, a very cold act, and maybe something you can never, uh, you know, there, there's no going back after having made that decision. You know. But it, it's not a psychotic, shouting madman act, uh, because Sabu isn't making cinema that way here where uh, because it's all very quiet even someone uh, falling into you know descending into madness which is uh, the case a little bit uh, for the older brother and and also and here here's something i shouldn't discuss because i'm not i'm I'm not really good at discussing it but I'll, i'll give you as basic of a take on it as i can without sounding totally daft but there is the element of christianity here and shuichi finding solace in the Bible. The, I, I don't think the movie is preachy. View, viewers might think it is preachy, but I, I don't think it is because he he clearly is finding solace in the Bible, but not following it blindly. 
which is the wrong thing to do. Like, he has his own thoughts, too. And not just walking into, like, is this is this how I should live? Yes, it is. Okay, I'll follow the book 100%. It, it's interesting how Sabu uh, pulls out the rug from us in terms of that as well. That finding solace in the Bible isn't necessarily your savior in this movie. It's, uh, it, the, the general infection that I use, which might sound pretentious, the word infection, and pu- putting it like in the context of the movie, it's um, Christianity might not say save you in that case, but it is uh, something that, that partly kind of, not saves, but uh, partly Shuichi finds uh, like, like a calming aspect uh, of his life. Uh, but uh, they never go as far as like he's doing priest studies or anything like that uh, it's uh, more like he reads texts text and um, is dedicated in terms of that it seems like he can sit and read text and absorb it for a little bit but uh, then there are the stories outside of the book that takes center stage and not like the reading of the bible and the uh in the Christianity aspect. Um, I think it's a good interpretation, but I think, you know, again, do you, you have to extend it kind of to all the aspects of the film or all the vices that the film touches on, which are, you know, spirituality slash religion, you know, material, drinking, women, etc., family, education, you know, none of these things are going to help you if you can't really help yourself. Exactly. It's not like the book is that that's like the guide for, complete salvation that is obviously what not what sabu is saying indeed it uh, it extends to you and uh so you're, you're very very right do you think in general is is it an overly pessimistic film you think i don't think so you know again maybe if you look at the story isolated yeah it's it's kind of it's kind of negative i mean you know not much good happens to anyone in the story good or bad i think as a piece that's probably meant to be one of you know, to allow the viewer or reader, again, of the book, some self-reflection, I think it's pretty positive to to give a message of, you know, hey, it's up to you to change your world. It's not up to all these other elements of society. I mean, they can help you, you know, certainly. I mean, religion, I think, for the most part, is not 100% bad. Of course not. Of course Maybe not. an atheist or something like that, you know. But that's, again, your own personal view on things, right? Alcohol isn't 100% bad. Chasing women isn't 100% bad. It's how you, you know, yourself handle those kinds of things. And if you can't handle them, then, you know, you better, you should find a way of, you know, living life in a way that, you know, that's that's successful. And, you know, that, that you know, that you feel successful is probably the better way to say it. And, you know, again, I think that comes out a lot in Connie Coulson in, in more obvious manners uh, rather than, you know, the more subtle ones of this film or, you know, less subtle, depending on, I guess, how you watch the film. Is Sabu's transition into drama a welcome one? Do you think, uh, having seen what you saw before, seeing this dead run, that there is a natural uh, evolving nature to him as a creator that can and should involve drama? I, I think so. I think it will always depend on the project, of course, you know, um, and how it's written. You know, no, nobody wants to be, especially artists, do not want to be pigeonholed, you know. And, I mean, if it makes them money, I guess that's fine. But, you know, everyone wants to have some variety in what they do. You know, otherwise, you know, you just doing the same thing over and over again you know, it's, gonna, it's just going to be boring right and that's why let me do a like a very relevant uh, comparison because you said that so well that's why i probably do differently themed podcasts because i will probably find it boring to just talk about hong kong cinema all day and and this is a show 
that I find so refreshing to do because it brings me new things and varies up matters to, to keep it very basic. So back to the director, of course, you know, you can do, you can have these sort of eclectic, um, pieces of work, but you know, it ultimately it's kind of up to the audience to figure out whether it works or not. And I think this works, you know, it kind of, it's not as maybe as strong as his other films in that, uh, you know, they don't necessarily, you know, have, uh, or this film doesn't necessarily have features, like I said, that kind of bind certain elements of his story together. But I think it shows, you know, a lot of promise, especially the case that, you know, this was a novel, an adaptation of, of a work that already existed. And, you know, that that's kind of hard to do, in my opinion, because, you know, you, you want to respect the work, but you also want to do your own thing, too. And I'm sure there was some compromise here and there, you know, um, but I think ultimately this is maybe not, I wouldn't call this a great film, but it's a pretty solid film. Uh, what do you think of um Terajima's bit part that actually sets off, uh, that, that actually has a meaning in the whole scheme of things. I think it, it's the, like the first encounter of meeting a kind Yakuza. And again, I think this is one of those things that I kind of, kind of graded on me a little bit, you know, just like I said, with the, the, the naming of the two sets of brothers, you know, where they call him, uh, you know, demon Ken, you know, it's kind of like evoking this sort of, you know, heaven and hell, you know, type of thing. And the character itself, I, I, I liked, and I was actually a little, I don't know if this is a spoiler, so you might want to edit this if you want, you know, I, I'm not too sure. But, you know, when he actually dies, you know, it's kind of like, ah, oh, he's like, I was hoping he's going to be a regular character throughout the entire film. You know? well, 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 I don't I don't think it is a spoiler because that is like within the first 10 minutes. But I, yeah, yeah, I, I was actually kind of disappointed because I thought he looks so good. And I like the fact that he comes out there like this big Yakuza guy because Terajima always kind of looks threatening. I'm sure he's a nice guy, but he he always kind of looks like he's uh, up to, you know, he's in Yakuza mode. And they don't necessarily come out there like, happy sunshine, everything's great. But he helps the kid like it because his chain has uh, is, has dislodged from the bike or whatever. And uh, he's like, you're not going to get anywhere. Get in the truck. And uh, he doesn't even say yes or no. And he just picks up his bike and puts him in the truck. You're in the, you're in the truck now. But he's not uh, abusive against him. He's, uh, he's uh, fairly kind. Right, and alternately, as far as a real jerk-off character is concerned, you know, you could look at the later Yakuza figure, his name is uh, Arata, if I remember correctly, and that was played by uh, Ren Renosugi, who's actually a less uh, domineering sort of presence, but nonetheless is the real demon. That, that's, uh, if I remember correctly, that he was in at least Postman Blues playing the uh, the Yakuza hitman who had cancer in Postman Blues. That, that, that's a big presence, all right. Uh, you believe you believe those uh, those events that he put uh, that he put <laughs> the, the characters around him through. Like that, that was danger. I don't have any any other notes. I mean, would I recommend it if you're interested in Sabu, of course, and you followed him up until that point? You know, give it a shot. Uh, it is a long film. It is a dark film, and it's certainly a change of pace quite distinctly but if you're interested in like an evolving journey this is part of that evolving journey and if you if you like the movie after uh, afterwards or not or if you think that he has a valid place in Sabu's filmography in terms of his journey that that's entirely up to you I'm not gonna sit here and say that it has uh, that it is but uh, I thought it was uh, quite good and affecting and challenging even and uh, I like this side of Sabu even though we might not see it again really uh, in terms of this uh, this like intense level of darkness that's 
It does pause us for availability though. This is available on Japanese DVD and is coming to Blu-ray in Japan uh, later this year. These editions, uh, the DVD edition have no English subtitles, but Blu-ray is listed the same, no English subtitles. It got a Hong Kong DVD release that presumably took the Japanese anamorphic transfer and put it on DVD and that had English subtitles, English subtitles, but that Hong Kong release is listed as out of stock. So for, for the review, I had to track down a fan-subbed version of the Japanese DVD that presumably took the DVD translation from Hong Kong and synced it to the Japanese DVD. So it's not a given, as we talked of, that companies will put English subtitles on DVDs and Blu-rays released in Japan. Sometimes it seems like it depends on the company. And so it's no surprise, but it's also kind of a shame because uh, you'd want to... Um, that that would warrant the investment, uh, would make the investment a little bit more tolerable, of course, because these DVDs and Blu-rays, John, they're so damn expensive. And I'm not, yep. and I'm not a tight, cheap guy, but 50 bucks for a DVD, subtitled or not, it really needs to be really special. <laughs> Yeah, I know it's the norm in Japan, but I it's hard on a on a salary to like constantly that I have to constantly buy Japanese editions. It just is. So, so I'm not trying to sound like a hypocrite here, where I'll pay for some DVDs and don't. But those prices are a bit too high for DVDs, at least fifty, sixty bucks for a DVD that is just normal edition and no like fancy box. Uh, I say no, John. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, how did you see it? Uh, was it a presumably uh, a similar version that I saw, um, an English subtitled uh, DVD edition? Yeah, probably the exact same version. And the translation, I have to say, was kind of uh, spotty at points, but uh, got through it. Yeah, yeah, you have the advantage of knowing quite a lot of Japanese, but you're still relying on you, you're reliant on subtitles, I, I assume, to get the whole picture. Yeah, I, I put subtitles on everything. I, I put closed captioned on cap, closed captioned, excuse me, on regular TV. You know, just I, I'm just so used to to seeing something. You know, while I'm watching TV nowadays, it's it's almost like a, the norm for me now, regardless of the language. Anyway, that is it. It might have been a long episode, but only one one movie for main discussion. Even though we talked a bunch of movies briefly, but next time which is actually next week for you listeners, uh, but the same day for us. We're continuing our Sabu run with the review of his 2009 novel adaptation, Kani Corson. There's a fair amount to say about this quite famous literary work, and um, the reason is, the reason we're keeping it to one movie in this episode is me and John can talk, for better or worse, depending on the listener you are. And I, as a producer, fo- am focusing right now on delivering shorter episodes at least below two hours on this network and it includes taking a look at the outline the participants including myself and then determining if a split of episodes is better and this is exactly what we're doing despite recording on the same day or night in my case so it guarantees you all listeners two weeks of japan on fire in a row so john and me will continue talking but we we will see you 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 will hear from us rather next time so uh this uh, has been Japan on Fire for now on the Podcast on Fire network. And we are on podcastonfire.com. Our email, podcastonfire at googlemail.com. Our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash POF network. And find a discussion group to join in on the discussion and updates by typing Podcast on Fire network in the Facebook search bar. You can also follow updates on Twitter. We're at Podcast on Fire. And I write about a variety of movies from Hong Kong, Taiwan, and uh, whether ninja-ish or adult-ish 
I do I do review porn, even though not I don't review Swedish porn, but uh, I, I do review a, a select uh, amount of uh, wacky porn from Hong Kong at SoGoodReviews.com and I video review at SleazyKVideo.com and my Twitter handle is at SoGoodReviews. And Japan on Fire is available on iTunes, rate and subscribe and leave a comment if you have the time. We would very much love to hear from you. And Stitcher Radio is the place to stream the network. You can find their application on the Apple App Store and Google Play. They also have a website, but the applications are the ones uh, the smoothest way to access Stitcher and us. And uh, for reference sake, where is vCinema, Omanet, John? Uh, we're located on vcinemashow.com, and that's S-H-O-W, which is kind of ironic because uh, we originally named the site vCinema Show because uh, we had our own podcast also known as a show but uh we no longer have the 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 actual v cinema show any longer unfortunately because of uh schedules and things like that conflicting with each other and uh us not being able to put out that kind of thing but uh it's always good to be here on a podcast on fire uh other ways that you can uh, check out v cinema are um on twitter v cinema show uh with the of course the at mark before that and we're also on Facebook. And I think that's it, basically. That's good. We are done for this episode of Japan Fire. We will see you next week for episode 22 of with more Sabu discussion dance. So for now, I've been Kenny B. And with me was Coffin John. So say bye-bye. Adios. Adios.